0: Go, your faith has made you well, something like that. But instead, we hear words we wouldn't expect Jesus to say. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And then we all feel terribly uncomfortable and move on to a different passage in our devotions. (laughs) If you've ever wrestled with this passage and read study notes or commentaries on it, you'll know that frequently what scholars say is happening is a sort of verbal sparring, a kind of back-and-forth game We're meant to picture Jesus replying with maybe a smirk on his face and this woman, as he and this woman go through the motions and then we all come out impressed and everybody's happy at the end. And that can feel like a bit of a cop-out if we read only the text we have today. But it isn't strange to think of Jesus maybe being playful or that he would care about this Canaanite woman if we read the whole of scripture to inform our reading. Jesus had already healed the Gentile centurion servant and praised his faith just a few chapters ago in Matthew 8. And in John 4, we have this famous interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And all three of these outsiders show remarkable faith, and all of them receive healing from Jesus. So it's completely out of character for Jesus to be casually racist and refuse to heal this woman. There isn't room for that kind of a simplistic reading of this text, not from what we know of Jesus in the Gospels. But even with that explanation, we might still feel some discomfort with this passage. And I think at least part of what makes us uncomfortable is that we want Jesus to already, at this point in his ministry, be the Messiah for the whole world, the king above all creation that we read about in Paul's letters. But the Gospels show us something that we need to know about who Jesus is, and we hear it in Jesus' first response this week. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And again, a simplistic reading might make those of us who don't belong to the ethnic house of Israel very uncomfortable. Let me explain why this matters, though. We want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be this abstract, disembodied thing. We want horoscope Jesus, who gives us universally applicable messages that we can apply to whatever situation we want. A Jesus who operates outside of time and space. We want Jesus to float above the earth and to have his words work, no matter the context. Nice, easily digestible, simple platitudes that we can just take and put wherever we want. But Jesus wasn't a figure in any context at all. He was Israel's Messiah. Think about Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because Jesus' life has a context, one that comes out of promises made to God's people in Israel. In Genesis, we read about sin and the fall of Cain murdering Abel of the flood and the Tower of Babel. Sin had plunged the world into chaos from Genesis 3 through 11. And in response, in Genesis 12, God doesn't say, I have a new philosophy to teach you. I have a new way for you guys to think, and that will defeat sin. Instead, God's response to sin is a people. A people that God chose not for their sake, but for the sake of the world. God works in reality, in real time and real space. God chose to become incarnate into a real flesh and blood descendant of Abraham because that was how God had promised to undo the destruction of sin and bless the world, through a real people in a real land. Of course, the problem is is that Israel was in need of redemption just like everybody else. The promise bearers became the promise breakers. And that introduces Some basic Christology here. Jesus had to be fully God because only someone outside of the problem of sin could be unstained from it and redeem us, but Jesus had to be fully human in order that his atoning work would be for the sin of humankind. But Jesus also had to be an Israelite because it was through Israel, through the people that God chose and formed for himself, that God promised to redeem the world. For Jesus to be a non-Israelite would break the promise God had made to his people. And as we heard this morning, the promises of God can't be revoked. Paul unpacks this in his letter to the Romans. And we read a tiny part of this sort of argument this morning. God's call to his people, God's calling of his people can't be revoked. But those people rejected their own Messiah so that Israel is in rebellion. And while that happens, God would extend this redemption beyond Israel's borders in Christ God doesn't destroy the category of Israel, though, and say that they are done. God defines Israel as the people who follow him. This is really important, that especially in the New Testament, it's clear that Israel, God's people, is not an ethnic category, but is defined as anybody who has faith in God, in the one true God. Think about Jesus' own genealogy, which includes Ruth and Rahab, outsiders who chose to follow Yahweh. Jesus himself gives a type of this redefining by redefining his own nuclear family. And he says, Who are my brothers and my sisters? Those who do God's will. And in our Old Testament passage, we see this definition of God's people as extending beyond ethnic categories. The church would continue to use this kind of language so commonly that they were accused of incest by marrying, quote unquote, brothers and sisters. From the early accusations of the early Christians, they're incestuous, they're marrying their brothers and sisters. But clearly, that's not true. They just understood their family, their people, to be everyone who belonged in Christ. And we heard this in our passage from Isaiah this morning. The section we read is at the beginning of a third section of Isaiah, sometimes called Third Isaiah, which is written to God's people as they have come back from exile. They'd spent all these years in Babylon and had returned, and there were new challenges as they were trying to understand themselves back in the promised land. In the books Ezra and Nehemiah, we can read about this recurring problem for the people of Israel when they return. Marrying foreigners. It's the exact same concern that God had for his people when they entered the promised land, that they weren't supposed to intermarry. Now, this sounds initially like the opposite of the point I'm trying to make. But God's concern was never for some sort of purity of bloodlines. It is to make sure that God's people aren't enticed away from faithfulness into idolatry. It happened to Solomon... He intermarries, and the problem isn't his intermarriage, it's because he marries other wives who follow other gods, and then he follows those gods as well. We read this morning that any foreigners, anyone who came in and would join themselves to God and obey the Sabbath, that's the example that Isaiah uses, they will be accepted, their prayers will be accepted. The reading ended with, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God had already gathered his remnant from Babylon, but he was going to gather even more people, even more people than those he had protected in Babylon, more people to come to Zion, to come to Jerusalem and to worship him. Paul talks this way in another section in Romans, that not all of Israel is true Israel, but that through Christ, when Gentiles are brought in, all Israel will be saved. God's people, Israel, the people he wanted to redeem the world through are defined as those who follow God. Paul's point is this, as one commentator put it, Israel was never destined simply to be an ethnic community, and it is still not so destined. Yes, God chose Abraham's offspring to be the way in which God saved the world from itself, but anyone who chose to join that family in following Yahweh was welcome. God promised Abraham that he'd bless the world through his descendants. Jesus said that God could raise up new descendants for Abraham from the rocks, and Paul says that everyone in Christ is now an inheritor of the Abrahamic blessing. God has never had a plan for the world apart from his people. And his people are all those who want to join themselves to him, which is now done through the call to believe and be baptized into the death and resurrection of Israel's Messiah, Jesus. And so, to our Canaanite woman, Jesus' interactions with her are simply God acting in time, being faithful to the plan God set. Jesus' primary work was to redeem Israel so that they could be the blessing to others. She just happens to be anticipating Easter before we're even at Calvary, and Jesus rewards her faith the way he does to basically every Gentile who comes to him and acknowledges that he is the true Messiah. So what? (laughs) This may have been an interesting sermon so far. Maybe not. But at this point, what does that mean for us? Here's the thing. God has no plan for the restoration of the world, the undoing of the curse, Apart from his chosen people, the promises God made were fulfilled in Jesus, but now they are lived through Jesus's bride, the church, whose members have been given the Holy Spirit to empower us and to go out and be as ambassadors. Of course, God is sovereign and can do whatever he wants, and we can't thwart his will. But his will, as he's revealed it in scripture, is to use humans, the humans that he has chosen as the vehicle for his work. And so, when we look around us and we look outside and we see in any number of places that things are not on earth as they are in heaven, the way that they are made new through the activities of the Holy Spirit are through the church, through you and I. There is no plan B. There is no other way that God is going to do his work. He seems to be very, very stubborn in insisting that it happens through his people. So our first action in response to this, must be to be transformed ourselves, to repent, turn from selfishness and sin, and receive from God those things that we can't possibly do for ourselves. Like Israel before us, we are often still part of the problem, and so repentance is necessary. And by that, I don't mean a sort of blanket, well, we're okay, we all sin, that's fine. Repentance requires an acknowledgment of sin. It requires us to look deep within ourselves and say, there are things that are wrong and bring them to God. We can be lulled into a sense of righteousness because we are pleasant people, uh, most of us. (laughs) Because we think, oh, we're nice, everything's fine. Because when I sin against my neighbor, they say, oh, it's okay, instead of I forgive you. I didn't really sin. And we convince ourselves everything is fine. We come to the altar rail every week receiving grace in the Eucharist and we say, yeah, but I'm probably fine anyways. There is a lie that we tell ourselves and we're going to, it's the year of Luther, so we're going to embrace our inner Lutherans here and say there is real sin that needs to be dealt with. And so our first step as being agents of change for God's world is to repent and to look deep and to do some hard work. And repenting, of course, means receiving grace and so it's not the work of self-shame and hatred. But it is a true and honest recognition of our sin. But then, after that, we have to act and be God's people. We leave this place going through a mural which includes baptismal waters, reminding us of our baptisms, of the fact that we have been united to Christ. And it gives us this vision of the world as God intended it to be. And having that vision in our minds is what enables us to change. Knowing that there is a way that things ought to be helps us act towards that goal. Now, we're all tempted to build up for ourselves tiny little empires built to our own comfort, or maybe even the comfort of our families. Maybe sometimes we convince ourselves that because we're doing it for our immediate families, it's not selfish. But God has called us to be a people who are conduits for his grace to a world that is broken and hurting. True freedom's for our families, true abundant living for our families is not mutually exclusive from doing God's work. In fact, they're one and the same. It's just that doing God's work and living the American dream might not be the same sometimes. Maybe all the time. I can't be sure. I pray to God he helps us understand where those two things diverge. Where the priorities of even what we might call the good priorities of this country are at odds with the gospel. We must go with the gospel. And so I pray that we all have wisdom to understand where those things diverge, because they don't always diverge, but there are places where they do. And while Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, the apostles were then sent by him to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. It strikes me that the first two places in that list are both local, the city and region in which the disciples already were. It would be like saying, I send you to Wheaton, Illinois, and the rest of the country. Well, you're currently in those first two And so I believe many of us are called to look around in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods, to our actual real flesh-and-blood neighbors, to really see the places where we live and where we can do good and be salt and light there. We aren't called to a placeless ministry, but we're called to places where we can minister, and we already live in that place. The place where God has called you to is at the very least the place where you are right now. And we're a church in Wheaton, Illinois, which means we're in a setting unlike a lot of others. But I think the churchiness of Wheaton, Illinois, has dulled my sense of mission, as if to assume that heaven and earth are already completely overlapping here. And that's simply not true if we only have eyes to see and the will to go out into our community and ask God, where shall I go? Some may be called to other places, to the ends of the earth, to do God's work there, to live and love others in new places, And I pray that more of us are willing to listen and see if that's our call. And maybe we're even called to that placeless place that we all live, the Internet. I feel like saying the Internet in a sermon already makes me sound ridiculous, but stick with me. It's a mistake to miss what makes that place not a place at all. If what I'm saying is that real space and real time matter, then the sort of timeless, asynchronous, bodiless interactions we have online isn't really a place relationships sustained entirely online are fundamentally missing something shared space physical contact there are things that make us humans that cannot be accomplished through a computer and yet if facebook is a place where you can be stirred angered or encouraged where people can organize and build communities for good or for ill then the church must engage with that place on one hand it's easy to mistake bold statements In my sermon is in quotes, uh, on Facebook as a sufficient proclamation of the gospel. Um, It's not. uh, That's not a sufficient way to preach Jesus. But it would be foolish to think that no one has ever been comforted or spurred to action because of something someone posted online. It's an odd combination of both our Jerusalem because it's immediately near us in most of our pockets and the ends of the earth because it's also nowhere near us at all. It's like a brand new mission field filled with people that we already know, with its own rules and customs. But what a gift to be able to bring words of encouragement to others so quickly. And what a challenge for the church to learn how to speak truth in love without the toxicity that creeps in when there is no delay between whatever great idea I think I have and everybody I have ever met. There should be more of a delay there. And yet, maybe that's where the church is called, is to speak truth there, is to be a gospel presence there. I hope we don't make that our primary mission field. Online church is not really church. (laughs) Real church is real church, but there are real people that we interact with online. And maybe that first step is to understand the reality and the humanness of the people whose faces we see next to names and to treat them as such. I don't know. I don't have clear application answers for what it looks like to be the church there. But I do know that that is kind of a place where we kind of live. So may we learn how to be the church there as well. But we need to think of whatever places we are, whatever places you spend your time in, because that is the place and those are the people that God is calling you to minister to. Everyone you know is invited to receive from God. And your job is to hand out as much grace as your arms can carry to them. Because as Jesus ministered on earth, his primary goal was to redeem the people of Israel. But that redemption was meant to allow them to fulfill the vocation that God had given them from the beginning, to be blessed and to bless others. I noticed in our psalm this morning, which I regretfully rarely ever include in my sermons, in that fifth verse, God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. These two things are not independent clauses. God will bless the people of Israel so that the ends of the earth shall fear him. When Jesus talks about a city on a hill, the point is for Israel to bring light to others. And if we are inheritors of Abraham's promise, of his blessings— Part of it is that we are blessed, which we have been through Christ, but part of it is that others would be blessed through us. The Canaanite woman's daughter who was healed was a foretaste of what God was planning on doing through Jesus' death and resurrection, the restoration of all the nations, the grace of God offered freely to the whole world. And by that grace of God, we get to be the conduits of that work. May we find ourselves healed by him, and then may we find ourselves looking at the places we already are, and a few where God might be sending us so that we might bless others. Amen.